Hey, parents and little adventurers. Ever wondered where hot dogs come from? Dive into a world of wonder with the new children's book about cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture? What's that? It's the science behind tomorrow's foods. Discover the journey of a family barbecue in a way that's fun, educational, and downright tasty. Grab your copy of Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? on Amazon today. Yum! The future sounds so delicious. Curious for more? Visit www.hotdog.fyi. Happy reading! Thanks for tuning in to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. I had a pleasure speaking to Ron Shigeta of Wild Earth on this episode. Before we get started, I want to give a special shout out to Radical Snacks. They're giving us 20% off through October if you use the coupon code FUTUREFOODS. Their website is radicalsnacks.com. That's R-A-D-I-C-L-E snacks.com, the botanical spelling of radical. They have these great 100-calorie snack bars filled with 60 blueberries and research-based ingredients. The Cultured Meat Symposium is a one-day conference in downtown San Francisco on November 1st. Early bird tickets are available until August 12th, so if you haven't picked up your ticket yet, be sure to do so before prices go up. Learn more about the Cultured Meat Symposium at cms18.com. Dr. Ron Shigeta is a co-founder of IndieBio, the world's premier accelerator for biotechnology. Ron helped establish a portfolio of 68 innovative consumer and startup biotech companies embraced by tech and industrial investors alike. Ron's food investments include Memphis Meats, Clara Foods, Geltor, New Wave Foods, The Knot Company, Miraculex, and Willow Cup. Currently, Ron is the CSO of Wild Earth a cellular agriculture vegan pet food startup in Berkeley, California. He also acts as the science advisor to Babel Ventures, a VC fund. Ron, I'd like to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food podcast. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here. Ron, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in creating an alternative to conventional meat production and what your team is really doing at Wild Earth. Well, Alex, the, uh, there's kind of a long story associated with that. Back in IndieBio, Ryan Betancourt and I were part of the team that did early investments in a lot of clean meat. The first clean meat company, Memphis Meats, that was ever funded uh, by, for investment and created as a company. You know, we worked with them, and we also worked with other food companies like Clara Foods and Geltor, as well as plant-based food companies like New Way Foods, and the whole uh, generation of little companies started appearing and they were all doing so well. Uh, I think it was very exciting to be involved with them and to see how things were evolving. And when we started uh, about four years ago doing this, nobody could understand how biotechnology and technology could improve food. Now it's very obvious that there are lots of advantages to improving food security, good nutrition, and even creating foods that were never possible before that people really want. Uh, And so seeing that, Ryan and I decided that we would start a company as well. And we had worked with over a dozen of these food food tech companies. The result was Wild Earth. And what was the primary factor to focus on pet food 
And for the entrepreneurs and marketers out there, what exactly is the market size of pet food compared to, I guess we'd call it the human food industry? Right. Well, uh, the pet, the size of the pet food market is actually pretty easy to talk about. Uh, it was not hard to decide. There was a lot of economic leverage there. First of all, there's no other companies operating in that space at the time when we started the company, the sort of uh, new next generation plant-based food companies. There are about 100 million pets, just looking at dogs and cats, there's about 100 million pets in the United States alone. Uh, all over the world, people are getting more dogs and cats. Uh, in the United States, the pet market, it includes medical and all kinds of other things, but it's mostly food, is about $33 billion a year, and it's continuing to grow. All told, all put together, all these animals, there's something like the eighth largest country in the world consuming meat. <laughs> so they're, they're responsible about 30% of our greenhouse gas uh, emissions uh, from food. Uh, and that's just a lot of, that's a lot of carbon. So there was a lot of reasons to pursue pets. The biggest, most important reason that a lot of entrepreneurs uh, and startup people miss is that it's also a market where we thought that people would be excited about buying the product. I think a lot of people think of an idea how to do something, some technology, and they think, oh, this is a great company. But it isn't until you actually figure out how to sell that product to people and whether or not they're going to buy it and how you're going to talk about it. That's really an important uh, aspect that most entrepreneurs don't understand uh, when they get started uh, in, on the, from the tech side of things. Okay, so pet food industry is called pet food industry. What do we refer to as the human food industry? Do we just call it the food industry? Yeah, it mostly just called food. There are a lot of differences between uh, human food and pet food, but mostly the, the human food industry is much, much larger than pets. Pets are really large already, and most people forget that. I mean, it's more important than the internet even. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, human food worldwide is about seven or eight trillion dollar market. In the United States, meat alone is is something like seven hundred. Mil, bil, sorry, $700 billion is the United States met, uh, meat market. Um, and so the overall food market is well over a trillion dollars in the United States. So it is even larger. Because of its size, those of us who care about sustainability, we understand that it's something that has to be reformed. You know, it's just one of these huge ecological sinks that human beings are sort of expending too much uh, of our natural resources sort of getting done. Tell us about fungi, and for the non-scientific folks out there, what is fungi exactly? Well, if you look at animals you could you, and, and plants, you could think of fungi as sort of the third kingdom. There are plants and animals, and fungi is sort of the third kingdom. Uh, they are older than plants. They never have photosynthesis. They can be single-celled, or they can be multi-celled like mushrooms. Uh, they behave a little bit like organisms. They behave a little bit like amoeba. They're a very exciting uh, form of life. When people get interested in fungi and they start looking around, they sort of, it almost feels like you've landed on another planet. Uh, it's amazing what they do. But the main thing is that they live with us all through our lives. They're inside of us, they're around us, they're on the tabletop. They're uh, ubiquitous in our lives. And of course, they're all throughout our food. Great. And I think I can't think of fungi without thinking of the classic dad joke that some mushroom was at a, getting a little bit crazy at a party and they threw him out and he said, why'd you throw him out? I'm a fungi. 
So, <laughs> so the, well, we've got to be fun yeah. guys too. <laughs> the classic dad joke. Cool. So, um, from a scientific standpoint, are there any major differences when it comes to developing cultured meat for uh, human food versus pet food? I think the biggest the biggest uh, surprise about a, a company going into pet food is that the meat has to be re- whatever product you produce has to be very cheap to produce. Uh, pet food has a really good profit margin compared to other food uh, sectors, but it's because they spend almost nothing on the cost of goods. So most pet food, especially meat-based pet foods, they're taking leftover produce that wasn't going to be eaten by people. And then they convert it to dog and cat food, kibble and so forth, or even the wet food. You have to have a technology. You have a way of producing the food that's going to be very low cost. That's changing. Um, But that means the food's also getting more expensive when it does. So there's a whole new line of pet foods now that people buy. And if you've got a dog or cat, you know it well already. Instead of buying a 20-pound bag for $20, you might walk to a little store and walk out with a 3- or 5-pound bag for $15. So there's a lot more high-end luxury sort of brands, and people are buying them. And that's one of the reasons that we started the company. And what about for like policy and, and regulation? Uh, is it a lot harder to get, I mean, I'm sure it is a lot harder to get human food approved by the FDA. What kind of regulation is surrounded around pet-grade food? Yeah, we talked about the kingdom of life. We talked about the kingdoms of food regulation. <laughs> there's a total another world out there. Pet food has its own regulatory board. Every state has its own slightly different rules about uh, how you can prepare, how you have to prepare pet food, and how you have to sell it, and what you have to have on the bag. So uh, it is a—it's an important topic in itself, and it's not—it's not just a sideline for anybody. It has to be a real—it's uh, a real professional journey to get through all the regulations for pet food. You know, food—food food in general are, is a very emotional thing, and people want to feel safe. So, you know, a lot of regulations have been added, uh, not necessarily without need, you know, but people are very very much watching the quality of the food. So there are a lot of regulations for human food and pet food has pretty much almost as many and they're different. So you do have to learn about all that to, to operate in the pet food industry, completely different people and very different processes in some cases. I, I think another thing I want to say is this very different food as you start to understand pet food you realize it's not actually the same substance. If it was, it'd be a lot more expensive. I mean, dog food is so cheap. Even the, the premium brands can be 5 or $6 a pound, but they don't really uh, equate to the cost of luxury human food. You have to be thinking about what you have a completely different world there, I guess. That's all I can say. Yeah, and I don't even know if it makes sense to go on air saying this, but when I was a kid and we would give those biscuits to my, my friend's uh, dog, uh, I will say we did kind of taste it a little bit just because we were really curious. So, um, but I mean, <laughs> it, it, that's another thing. It's interesting. This changed about pet food. I mean, I remember when I was a kid in, in junior high, my teacher would say, when I go skiing, I take a little packet of dog food uh, with me because I know I won't snack on it. But if I get lost, I'll have it there. And I don't think that's a good idea anymore. <laughs> pet food has changed a lot. And uh, one of the things that's changed is that, you know, as we've gotten more efficient in using food efficiently, we sell more of it to people. And so the dogs and cats, they don't get what they used to get. Um, It's all a lot more processed than it used to be. 
And uh, so even despite all these regulations, foods uh, safety and the food content are changing year by year. It's uh, something that most pet owners know very well. We, another thing that attracted us to the pet food market is the consumers are very aware of what they're buying and they're looking for something better constantly because they really don't like the food that's out there, especially the, the bottom of the market things. And we want to basically retur- return the, even the bottom of the market, the entire market to safety and food that has been you know, tracked and it's nutritious and it's not just a byproduct of what's left over after people eat. Right. And are there a lot of pet owners that feel that like a plant-based diet for their pets is, is important? I think that um, that's a sort of a conflict. I think that a lot of people think that dogs and cats uh, need to have meat. Dogs are actually omnivores. They can eat, they can subsist on a vegetable diet. And like wolves will eat uh, plants throughout the winter. And it's perfectly fine. There's a couple vitamins that need to be added to the cat food to make it uh, nutritious for them. And those are all required elements. But we think that, uh, I mean, nutrition in the end is still biochemistry, it's still biology. And if we understand what the needs of the organism are, good food can be made from just about anything. It can be plants or meat, and cats and dogs will get along fine. What are some of the biggest scientific challenges that your team is facing right now? Well, you know, we have a very exciting company. A lot of things are happening right now. I think the biggest challenge we're facing right now is even those for a young company, we're trying to figure out how to get tons of product out. We're much uh, faster technologically than a lot of other sort of tech food companies. We plan to be selling this fall. Our products will be coming out this fall and then we'll be putting out larger volumes of product in the new year. And we're just trying to figure out how to, I'm learning to be a chemical engineer basically. And, uh, work with the companies with the large fermenters that are going to create tons of product that we can create tons of food and sell it. That's kind of our plan. Um, but it's, uh, it's a literal thrill to go into work every day and learn something new. I think we're all really enjoying it. Do you feel that cultured meat will penetrate the uh, main animal agriculture food source for humans? And it may be considered somewhat taboo for a pet food company to move towards human food, but does Wild Earth have any plans to do this? Well, first of all, I'm 100% sure cultured meat will become a very common uh, food for people and animals, you know, in the medium term. Ecologically, I mean, sustainability is becoming more and more important, and everybody's becoming more aware of that. And that's a great thing because I think we're using something like 94 to 96% of the animal bearing capacity of the, the land and probably of a large percentage of the water to feed ourselves. Agriculture is dominating like 90% of the ecosystem in terms of food production. We're edging out all the animals and plants, <laughs> all the jungles and forests are getting smaller and smaller. And uh, so it's a great time for everybody to, to sort of come together and figure out how we can live uh, as another 2 billion people are coming on, uh, onto the planet. So something as a scientist I feel very strongly about, and I think a lot of the consumers out there are also feeling that, that they want to participate and be responsible to do what they can. And uh, what we do at the dinner table is going to be a big part of that. As far as going to human food, we, we, we probably will do something along those lines. We know that our technology is applicable there. 
but uh, Wild Earth is very much focused on pets at this time. There are a lot of skeptics out there with a even a scientific background that feel that clean meat or, or cultured meats won't make it. And, and a, a lot of them, I think, are really talking about that the, having successful trials is, is very hard to achieve. Uh, what, what do you think about some of the folks with a science background being skeptical of the technology? Yeah, I mean, I've been a scientist my entire life. I've, you know, I'm, uh, it's been like 30 years. I've been a professional scientist and uh, scientists are just like anybody else. There's so many different opinions, except maybe scientists feel a little more entitled to have them <laughs> than other people. I mean, they, they, they have relevant experience and everything. But I, uh, I, I think that where I'm standing, things look very different. Uh, so scientifically, what I see is people trying to solve problems that nobody's ever tried to solve before. So trying to make muscle tissue and removing uh, fetal bovine serum, the most expensive part of the nutrition that we give to the cells as they grow, that's just something most scientists, even though we've been working with these cells for decades, almost none of the scientists have ever tried to make it cheaper to cultivate these things. And as a scientific problem that has never been touched, uh, it's falling a lot faster than a lot of the scientists realize. So the critics often are talking about experience that's not quite uh, hands-on. And what we see when I, among my friends in the industry, when I see what they've been doing and we talk about um, what about their progress, these problems are getting solved on a six-month cycle, just a lot like tech was. You know, you have different, uh, you had different processors coming out, imp improving the com computation speed tenfold every 18 months or so. In uh, clean meat, we see similar progress being made, and it's very exciting scientifically. Um, there's a lot of exploration and a lot of discovery happening there, and it's a shame that uh, a lot of scientists just sort of assume it will be just as difficult as to say doing cancer research. If you do cancer research, uh, there are decades and decades and thousands and thousands of researchers behind you that have covered the same ground. Uh, and it's really hard to make a contribution. In clean meat right now, things are changing so quickly and progress will be made so rapidly. It's a little bit like a golden age of science, you know, like when, you know, when nuclear energy came out, came out or the elements are being discovered you, you have just a lot of fantastic discoveries being made all the time. And it's too bad that a lot of these guys, these critics are not engaging it and understanding that there's a lot to be learned from industrial science. Solving a problem and, and actually taking your discoveries to market is supposed to be the greatest thrill that any scientist will ever achieve in their lifetime. And people in their 20s would just fresh out of their PhD are doing it. And it's a shame that most people don't understand that it's really kind of sad for me <laughs> to sort of see a lot of scientists sort of misunderstand what's going on uh, in food and, and entrepreneurial biotech in general. Mm -hmm. This is too bad. <laughs> we have a question from one of our listeners. Uh, Julian is an entrepreneur from North Carolina, and he asks, what is really the best way to uh, network to find a scientific co-founder? Well, Julian, that's a really great question. And I, I get that question occasionally. I think it's important to just spend a lot of time hanging out. If you're in San Francisco or New York, there are meetings where people try to get entrepreneurs together, entrepreneurially minded students together 
or professional scientists from industry. Uh, if you're not somewhere like that, it'd be okay to start one and just see who shows up. I've been working with Ryan, my uh, Ryan Betancourt, my co-founder, I've been working with for six years now. And it's just getting better every year. We're just making tremendous progress. But you have to have enough of a sense of trust with somebody to, to engage being a co-founder. And so you have to really get out there, meet a lot of people, and get excited about ideas with other people. And that forms a bond, hopefully, that will sort of allow you to sort of have confidence enough to sort of start a company. It is probably the, the slowest, if not the hardest part of being an entrepreneur. Have you experienced or have you tried any cultured meat samples? I am a very, very lucky guy. So I was privileged to try some of the first samples that Memphis Meat produced, uh, as well as Finless Foods. And all the other companies have had samples. Of all, they've all produced, uh, being in the lab and working with them every day, uh, I was privileged enough to get a tiny taste. And the stuff is amazing sometimes. Like the first sort of uh, pork samples that came out of Memphis Meats are playing. It, it, was, uh, it wasn't uh, red. It was sort of golden colored. They've sort of fixed that by changing the culture conditions a little bit. But it still tasted like pork. It was really great. Uh, it was so exciting to be there. Clara, I had one of their early egg whites. That stuff is exactly like an egg white. I mean, it was for me, it was indistinguishable. It was a miracle uh, to see something like that happen. And the food is just so identical. It's just so amazingly. Uh, it's the same, but it's also cleaner. You know, it's just exciting to your brain to, to try it. And, you know, same for the New Wave shrimp, the, some of the Geltor uh, gelatin animals. All of these things were just little revelations in your mouth. <laughs> And yeah, it just gets, you can just, I, I think that's why everybody's excited about it. And also kudos to Finless Foods there, that they had this tiny little fish samples and they really, it was really tender. It wasn't just fish. It was, it had that sort of salty sea taste in it. All the products were just really amazing. Um, and I, I could go on and on. I mean, Miraculex's um, sweeteners are fantastic. Um, Notco, the Notco had this wonderful yogurt, which they've decided not to put out. I'm just, it's tragic that that stuff won't be public for a little while longer while they get their, their vegan mayonnaise out. But uh, when you do have that stuff, I think everybody will say, oh, it was all worth it. The journey, the journey was worth it. <laughs> Are there any clean meat or cultured meat or even plant-based meat startups that are on your radar that are really interesting or doing exciting things. And I do know that you have a, a couple that you have, actually many that you have worked with in the past, but any noteworthy ones as of late? We're really good friends with Finless Foods, for instance. Uh, I, there's another company that's coming out called Wildcatch that's trying to also do fish culture. I'm glad people are trying to solve major problems with with this technology, fish is a fantastic, seafood's a fantastic field to get involved in. Aquaculture in general, people don't think of it as very, a very exciting place. But I mean, if you want to sort of be involved in preventing thousands and thousands of extinctions and basically the death of the coral reefs and the oceans, I mean, uh, it's hard to imagine more important work that you could do than to get involved in the aquaculture. There's a lot more action happening around leather now. There's actually less leather in the United States being produced than ever before because we are eating less beef than we did 10 years ago. And as such, uh, the price of leather is going up. 
um, the supply of lead is drying up. So if you look at some of the secondary effects, what's going to happen when people eat half as much meat as they do now? Or if it all comes from, uh, from, from, from bioreactors, there'll be other things that are going to change. Those will all create opportunities. And there's a tremendous sense that you can have an impact on basically rebuilding sustainability for the human race. So it's really good to get out there and explore who's making product and what are they selling to? Uh, what of it, what, how is it wasteful? What needs to change? Uh, that's what, I mean, pet food was a great exploration for us, but there are dozens and dozens of niches out there that really could use improvement. For instance, oh, you know, uh, Geltor, they're mostly producing cosmetic components. That was a fascinating experience to work with them. They just won an award as the most innovative product in cosmetics of the year because we use a lot of collagen or gelatin for makeup and for moisturizers and skin creams. And nobody really understood that before they went and looked at that. It's really, there's all kinds of interesting facts. For instance, we don't use a lot of beef collagen for makeup. And I think it's actually outlawed because of mad cow disease. I mean, we can eat it, <laughs> which will still give you spongiform encephalitis. But um, nobody, I mean, I guess the skincare industry just said, well, we don't have to have any of that. And so all of the collagen comes from seafood, which doesn't have, doesn't have the virus. And that's very interesting. But, you know, seafood, um, but fish collagen doesn't do all the things that they want. And it's harder to get. And it, it doesn't sort of behave the same way uh, that, as they want all the time. And Geltro solved this problem by making a vegan product that doesn't come from any animal. You know, that turned out to be a, a discovery that's just as, probably more important than their science. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, this, it's this wonderful time you can just sort of write a new story about an everyday thing that billions of people use and really impact it. It's, uh, that's the real thrill here, I think. Um, and it's biotechnology, contrary to its reputation, you know, biotechnology is actually not that expensive anymore. Uh, there's enough investment out there to get if you're a credible entrepreneur. There's enough ways to get money out there to try these things and actually make them happen now. And that's why the investors are getting so interested in what's going on. They can see the path. And there's a lot of ideas floating out there. And there's going to be many, many more. I mean, the path is the ice is broken now. And so you can go out there with an idea like that and people will listen to you. So it's a fantastic time to get involved. I think a lot of people have experiences really valuable that they don't know about. Maybe as a kid, you, you know, your parents worked at a chocolate factory or uh, you did part-time work after school canning vegetables. You know, just all of these things that we see in our sort of in our lives, they actually contain a tremendous amount of information. They, they inspire most of the entrepreneurs to get things started and try something new and Everybody else just looks at you and goes like, well, oh my gosh, you know, how did you think of that? That's just very, that's amazing that you actually knew, knew about, you know, the, the economics of preserved animals or certain kinds of meats or fashion or leather. You know, the CEO of Bolt Threads, Bolt Threads is a bio silk company here, for instance, in the East Bay, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and they make silk, but they wanted to produce a lot of fabric. They focus first on getting bacteria to spin out yeast, uh, spin out the silk and creating silk fiber from it. Once they're producing enough volume to make ties and clothing, 
they realized they needed to get in the fashion industry. And so they're producing their own lines of clothing. They're shedding a lot. I mean, their company's becoming a tech slash fashion company. And they're just interested in the trends of what people are wearing as they are doing bio, molecular biology and producing silk. And it's fascinating to watch them evolve. It turns out that Dan's wife is in the fashion industry. I'm sure those conversations at home uh, really changed the company's path. Yeah, and it's really cool to see cellular agriculture affect so many different industries. That's right. It is. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, as a young entrepreneur, you know, like our, as, like our earlier question, it really is about digging deep to what you know. And pe- more people have something interesting and valuable in their lives and their experience already than, than they think. And everything needs to be redone. Everything could become more sustainable with biotechnology. It's just a question of going back and seeing the right experience. I mean, that's why people, that's why food is taking off right now. It's because it's something everybody knows. It's a shared experience. You and I go eat every day. We eat different things. We love the food. And because of that, when someone wants to change it in a way that we're excited about, It's something we know we can personally get involved in. It's actually kind of a commons where we can all come together and help help the climate, help the ecosystem. I think that's why it's so powerful. There are many other attempts like this whole biofuels uh, idea is coming along, but it's much slower. Bioethanol is being produced, biodiesel is being produced, but it's not, it doesn't have the same um, passion, I think, that the, the food, the food movement has. Um, because, you know, in the end, you, you know, you drive a car up to the station, you fill it up and you leave and you drive. You don't really think about the gas as much. Um, but, you know, we might talk about our lunch or the dinner we had last weekend for, for days and days. <laughs> you know, it's just right. something a lot personal. Because it's personal, people are afraid to sell into it. The food industry is having a big problem uh, trying to adjust to shifting comp- consumer attitudes. They're used to those changing Basically, never, you know, I mean, my parents ate much of the same food that I did uh, growing up. But now the food's changed completely. You know, over 40 years, really very little change. You can predict everything. You can sell the same product year after year after year and, and just market it and get better growth. Um, now, multi-billion dollar revenue companies are seeing people wandering away from their products, looking for something new. And that restlessness is something that we're all sort of experiencing because we know the world's changing. We want to change with it, I think. So that's kind of why it makes food so great right now. It, I, I'm, I really think uh, that it's a place where scientists can become a bit of an activist, use their experience and their skills directly to help solve the, one of the biggest challenges the world has ever faced. Humanity's never been at a greater moment of crisis than it is now in terms of what's going to happen to future generations and how they'll live. And we all know this, and I think we all feel very powerless about it. But, you know, just sitting down at the table and trying something new that and just telling us whether it's better than what you had last week, that's enough to sort of be involved. And I think that's why we're all here. I think that's why you're here doing the podcast. And I think that's why Ryan and I are doing back at our office. Uh, We're all in this for the mission. And uh, although we hope there'll be commercial success along with it, uh, we all know we're here for something important. And that's why everybody's involved great. You can get in touch with Ron on LinkedIn and by visiting wildearthpets.com. Ron, do you have any last insights for our listeners today? Yeah, I think um, keep eating something new. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, it should that, have a great that day. made me think of the uh the trail mix for the ski slopes with the <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to eat that yeah. <laughs> eat some new pet food yeah. <laughs> you know um it's a great time to get out and explore and i'm i'm really happy to explore this with you today Ron, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story on the Cultured Meat and Future Food podcast. Thank you. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode.